started this morning, I, I do need to take just a minute and, and share something with you. When I left my home this morning, my clothes were clean. Um, but on the way here, I actually saw a truck that had left the road. It was in the woods. Lights were still on. I, I pulled over. It was still running. And sure enough, there was somebody in there. He had wrecked pretty bad, uh, ended up. He was unconscious, called 911, was able to bring him around. Um, as they were working with him and, and trying to get him out of the car, I, I looked over at one of the firemen. I said, yeah, I'm supposed to be up near Cookville this morning preaching. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to let you go on. So they actually moved the fire truck. And here I am. I've got quite a bit of mud on my pants. So if, if, if you're wondering, um, my wife does take care of me and... and I left, like I say, with clean pants. It has been several years since the last time I was with you guys, and since that time I have met quite literally dozens of young people who have walked away from the church, young people who, whose faith has been shattered, and oftentimes it goes something like this. They grow up faithful in a congregation just like this one, they run off to college, and maybe it's not the first semester. Maybe, maybe it's the second semester they're there. They walk into a class, maybe like a, a world literature class. And the professor, he stands there, and he's holding two books. And he holds up the first one, and he says, this is the textbook for this class. You are expected to know every bit of it, you'll be tested on it. You can buy this textbook at the bookstore for $178. And he sets that one on his desk. And then he holds up a Bible. And maybe he pauses just long enough to see if there are any smiles of recognition. And he continues by saying something like this. Yes, and any of you that hold that there are truths in this book, or you believe in this book, you need to either drop this class or be prepared to fail. And with flourish, he throws it into a garbage can. In fact, one young man told me, he said, he said, Dr. Harib, he didn't just throw it into a garbage can. He said, my professor actually lit the Bible on fire before throwing it into a metal garbage can. The attacks today are absolutely unending. And I think probably one of the accounts that is most ridiculed is the account of the flood. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to spend quite a bit of time there. There is little doubt that skeptics love to poke fun at the idea of a global flood. And as a result, Today, sadly, we've got many Christians who are willing to say, well, you know, maybe that didn't happen. Maybe, maybe that was just a story to teach us something. Because think about it, after all, many of us grew up with that type of picture of the flood. A cute little children's story. In fact, those of you who have been to the Ark Encounter up in Kentucky, you know, they've got a whole display showing all the books that are basically painting a childlike account 
of this biblical story. Add to it all the different attacks that Hollywood has placed on this particular account. Movies that ridicule or, or make fun. You've got Evan Almighty years ago. Some of you remember the movie Noah that came out. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not sure these guys even read the Genesis account of the flood. Because about the only thing they got right was they did have water and they had a boat. That's about it. This morning what I want us to do is I want us to talk about how would we prove that there really was a global flood. What kind of evidence do we have? If I were a lawyer, you were a jury, how would I prove it to you? The first thing I would do is I would actually take you to the highest mountain plains in the world. Every mountain region that we could find. Because you know what we find on tops of basically every mountain range? Aquatic fossils. Seashells. This is actually a, an image from a mountain range over near Nepal. It's about 20,000 feet in elevation. I have sent this picture to several atheists and I ask them the question, how do you explain this? You know what they always say? Local flood. So I have fun with them. I send them additional images from different continents, other mountain ranges that all show the same thing, and that is aquatic fossils at some of the highest points. In fact, these are some shells that a soldier brought back from Iraq, one of the highest points in Iraq. And I just ask them, okay, then how do you explain these? And again, they always refer back and they say, well, maybe it's a local flood. And I'm like, yeah, that was a really big local flood. Covered like five different continents. In fact, the highest point on the planet, Mount Everest. When climbers get to the top of that particular mountain, they put their flag in. They're actually putting their flags over the the fossils of animals that once belonged in the sea. Now think about that for just a minute. Those of you who know anything about Mount Everest, you know it's not exactly a coastal city. Closest beach is somewhere around 450 miles away. So a logical question is, how do you have aquatic fossils on the highest point on the planet unless there was a global flood? Now, while we're in this region, over near China, let, let me point out something else some of you may not be aware of. When the very first missionaries got to China, the Chinese people, they said they knew about creation, they knew about the flood. They claimed not to be of Chinese descent, but rather they said they came from Japheth, one of Noah's sons. Now, let me prove it to you. Most of you in this room, you know, the Chinese people, they do not use letters the way we do. They actually use symbols to make words. Take a look at the Chinese word for boat. It's made up of three distinct symbols. Vessel, eight people. Why would they use that 
for their designation of the word boat. Because, folks, the flood was real. In fact, take a look. This is their word for garden. It's made up of four different distinct characters. Dust, breath, two people in an enclosure. Man, that sounds a whole lot like, oh, I don't know, the, the opening pages of God's word, doesn't it? So one of the very first things I would do is I would take you to the highest points on the planet and we would look at the aquatic fossils proof that, yeah, there once was a global flood. But I would also then turn you back to the earth itself and we would look at the layers. If I were to ask you to go out here on I-40 and bend some of those rock layers, I think most everybody in this room recognizes rocks don't bend that easy. And yet, quite literally, all over the planet, we've got layers that are not just bent. In many cases, they are actually bent over on themselves. Layers that can only be explained through a catastrophe like, oh, I don't know, maybe a, a global flood. So the mountaintops are crying out that, yeah, there was a flood. The earth's layers themselves are crying out that, yeah, there was a global flood. What about some of the fossils? The next place I would take you is to the Colorado-Utah border where the Dinosaur National Graveyard exists. If you go there today, you will see quite literally hundreds upon hundreds of dinosaur fossils that have been slammed into limestone rock, permanently fossilized. Now you gotta ask yourself, how in the world do you lift animals that big, 60 tons, slam them into limestone rock, permanently fossilizing them? When you go there today, there's a, a ranger station, and they've got a, a, a mural of dinosaurs being swept away by water. The little placard underneath it says this. After a seasonal, what's the next word? Flood. Now, they would go on to add millions of years, but the point being, they recognize you're not going to move creatures that big and that many of them without a massive amount of water. So, the mountaintops are definitely testifying that there was a flood. The earth's layers are testifying. The fossils are also testifying. But for most people in this room, all you need is this right here, right? Because if the Bible says it, that does it. By the way, not just the Old Testament. Take a moment and think about this. For all the people who are willing to say, well, I think, you know, maybe the flood was just a, a story that, that teaches us a good moral value. Look at how many New Testament inspired authors referred back to a global flood as a real historical event. Folks, if it wasn't real, if it didn't really happen, then why did Peter, Matthew, Luke, the writer, 
the book of Hebrews, why did they put it in there if it wasn't real? By the way, do we also have other written documentation, like ancient civilizations that wrote about a flood in their history? If we were to look at, say, archaeology, can we find flood stories in ancient cultures like, for instance, the Sumerians, the Hittites, the Greeks, the Mayans, all of these different ancient cultures had a flood account in their history. And so here's what I know. An intellectually honest person, when they look at all of this evidence, they recognize, yeah, there had to have been a global flood because all of these ancient cultures talk about one and that wouldn't be the case if they didn't have some kind of foundation of truth. And you say, okay, yeah, Brad, but, but still, I mean, <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you build a boat big enough to have all of those animals? Again, if you've got your Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 6. Look with me, starting in verse 14. The text says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, covered inside and outside with pitch. Now let me go ahead and answer one question that some of you may be thinking about. And that is, what's gopher wood? The answer is, we don't know for sure. I've been told that that's when God told Noah, hey, go for wood, and that's probably a pretty good answer. But have you ever noticed God does a pretty good job of making sure things that we might tend to worship or, or, or pay too much tribute to, we don't have, for instance, the manger Jesus was put in when he was born, right? We don't have the cross. There, there's a lot of things that God has, I think, purposefully held back so that we don't worship things rather than him. Same thing with gopher wood. Let's be honest. If we really knew what gopher wood was, that's all Home Depot would carry, okay? Everybody would want their desk built out of gopher wood. He goes on to say this, the length of the ark should be 300 cubits, the width 50, the height 30. 300 by 50 by 30. Now, we don't use those kind of measurements today. We use feet, inches, yards. Back then, a cubit was defined as the length of a man's forearm. They actually had a normal cubit. They had a royal Babylonian cubit, a little bit bigger. The average length of a man's forearm, 18.34 inches. So if we round that down to 18 inches, here's what that really means. That means this boat was 450 feet long, a football field and a half. Now, the very next verse, God instructs Noah to put three decks on it, right? Knowing that, knowing the, the outer dimensions... Here's what we can do. We can actually calculate the volume that he had. Like how big was this thing as far as storage capacity? And I've done that and I can tell you, 
using a very conservative 17 and a half inch cubic, Noah would have had 1.39 million cubic feet of storage space. 1.39 million. But since that number is really too big for any of us to, to get our hands around, let me give it to you in a way in which hopefully you won't forget. If we were to stop right now, walk down to the closest railroad crossing, and we start counting boxcars as they slowly roll by. One, two, three. We get all the way up to 52. Friends, all 52 of those massive boxcars would have very easily fit on Noah's Ark. And nine more trains, just like that one, to the tune of 522 railroad boxcars. Here's a question for you Who created all the animals? God did, right? Don't you think he knows how big a boat he needs to house all the animals he created? Second question. Did Noah have to take adult animals on the boat? Could he have taken juveniles? Yeah. I mean, let's stop and think about it for just a minute. What was the purpose of the animals once they got off the boat? It was to replenish the earth, right? So does it make sense to everybody in this room that you'd want to have animals that have a long reproductive life ahead of them? Yeah. I, no disrespect to anybody I, in this room. I, I don't think there were any animals getting on that boat holding an AARP card. Okay, I don't think it happened. Do I think he could have gotten all the animals necessary? Oh, yeah. With room to spare, by the way. You say, but, but how, how in the world is he going to get, like, two of every species of animals? Well, the first point to make about that is, the text doesn't say two of every species. It says two of every what? Kind of animal. This boat was not some little Sunday afternoon sailing ship. This was the largest boat built to that day. And oh, by the way, if you really want to know how big this thing was, if you ever find yourself stranded in San Francisco, I used to say if you ever go to San Francisco, but I would not encourage you to go anymore. If you ever find yourself in that city, Go down to Pier 39 where there is a ship that is permanently docked. It has become a museum. It's called the, the SS Jeremiah O'Brien. It is the, one of the last of the Liberty ships. Now, the Liberty ships are basically kind of what helped us win the war because we could actually build them quicker than the Germans could sink them. I, I'd heard about this boat long before I ever got to see it. I called down, I talked to a retired Navy officer. He was there in the little booth of this particular museum. And, and I asked him, I said, hey, what can you tell me about the SS Jeremiah O'Brien? 
He told me all kind of things. He told me the year it was built, which battles it had fought in. And I let him talk for four or five minutes before I finally asked him the one question I really wanted to know. I said, what can you tell me about its size? Now, keep in mind, this guy did not know me from Adam, didn't know what I do for a living. But the next words out of his mouth were, do you own a Bible? I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, well, if you'll open it up to the book of Genesis, you can find the dimensions for this ship. I said, how's that? He said, yeah, they built the whole fleet to the dimensions of Noah's Ark. I said, why'd they do that? He said, because they wanted to have large ships that could carry heavy loads through rough seas. Now, folks, I want you to think about that for just a minute. Our Navy patterned a blueprint for an entire fleet of ships that they got from Noah, who got his blueprint from who? God. I was speaking in a university not too long ago and I had a, a professor there kind of heckling me all through my talk and anytime I would mention the ark he would kind of bust out and say it wouldn't have floated it wouldn't have floated and and I knew I had this information in my slide deck and so when I put this up on the screen I looked directly at him and I said crazy thing this whole fleet was able to float just like Noah's Ark. He didn't say a whole lot after that, by the way. Sometimes I think we don't really get a good mental image of what this thing would have been like because we have that childlike perspective. Two giraffes hanging their head out of the window of a boat. Think about this. How would Noah have had enough time to build a boat that big? Because this is a huge ship, right? Again, if you've got your Bible, look at the very last verse of Genesis chapter 5, where we are given a time element. The text says, now Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So he's 500 years old. Now, slide down and look with me. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for indeed he is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There's a lot of people who have said that maybe this is when God limited human lifespans to 120 years. I, I personally don't think that's the case. And the reason I don't think that's the case is if you look at the genealogy of man given in the Bible, you'll notice there are a lot of people mentioned after the flood that lived past 120. So on the screen behind me, we've got a timeline. You'll notice Adam up here in the top left corner. Everybody to the left of this first blue arrow would have been all the individuals alive during Adam's lifetime. The second blue fuzzy line is the flood. So take a look after the flood. We got 
438, 433, 464, 238, 233, 230, 140. You got a lot of people living past 120, right? You say, all right, Brad, then what's he talking about here in Genesis chapter 6? I think that this is probably a probationary period that God is giving them to clean things up. Kind of like he did with Nineveh. Did God give Nineveh a specific amount of time and say, hey, you better repent or else I'm going to destroy everything? Yeah. Now flip over in your Bible. Look with me. Genesis chapter 7, starting in verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. So he's roughly 500 years old. God looks around. You know what he sees? <laughs> he he kind of sees some of the same stuff we see today. Absolute debased minds. Sin all over the place. And folks, if you don't think that we have debased minds and sin in America today, please wake up. Because when they're telling our children, hey, gender is fluid, and you can be whatever you want to be, and, and we're encouraging some of this stuff. That's pretty messed up. God says, I'm going to clean it up. And the way I'm going to clean it up is I'm going to destroy everything with water. He gives them a probationary period. Several years ago, there was a book written by Henry Morris called The Genesis Flood. It's a really good reference book if you ever want a, a good one on this topic. In that book, Morris, he, he showed how four people, that would be Noah and his three boys, could have cut, dressed, and installed about 15 cubic feet of lumber per day. Now, if they work six-day weeks, resting on the Sabbath, here's what that means. They could have cut, dressed, and installed about 4,680 cubic feet of lumber per year. Now, knowing the dimensions, knowing how big this boat is, we can calculate that he would have needed about 380,000 cubic feet of lumber, which means Noah and his three boys could have done it in just 81 years. So, to the skeptic out there, I would look at you and say, not only is it possible, this is if he didn't hire anything out. And somebody says, all right, but Brad, early man was dumb. How, how in the world could Noah have had the smarts to do it? To which I would look at you and say, Number one, God is never going to give you a command that you cannot keep. Amen? Uh, number two, I would point out, if you really think early man was dumb, you've probably swallowed the evolutionary pill. Because I would argue with you that Adam, that his mental faculties were probably far superior to ours. I'm one of those guys that, you know, if you stop and think about it this way, you put a copy of something on a Xerox machine. 
And every time you keep making copies, you use the next one. Does it get cleaner or fuzzier? It's going to get fuzzy. Well, you are the fuzzy copy, okay? Adam was the original. I think his DNA, his mental capacity was superior to ours. In fact, you don't go very far into Scripture. You're in Genesis chapter 5 or 4, and all of a sudden we're learning that people were smart enough to smelt metal and make musical instruments. Take a look. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 20, we read about Jubal, who was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. So here we are, we're just a few short generations from Adam and already people are smelting metal, they're making musical instruments. Do, do I think Noah would have had the mental capacity to make this boat? Oh yeah. Next time somebody tells you that early man was dumb, by the way, this, this what we're talking about right now is not a hypothetical situation Literally this last week, I was sitting in a room with some gentlemen who have been Christians for a long time. But they're convinced that we came from Neanderthals. Now stop and think about that for just a minute. The Bible tells us three things about Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Flip over there with me. Genesis chapter 2. Take a look with me, starting in verse 15, where the text says, The Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Point number one, man was industrious enough to work. By the way, he was expected to work. Look at the next verse, verse 16. The Lord God commanded a man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for all the days that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Point number two, man was smart enough to know right from wrong. Now skip down to verse 20. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. You remember God paraded the animals in front of Adam. He named each and every one of those Basically meaning he didn't just give them a name, he was to remember that name and then pass it on to his offspring, right? Now, follow me for just a minute. Industrious enough to work, knows right from wrong, smart enough to name the animals, all three of those happened before Eve was fashioned. Look in the text. You know what that means? That means God created man with intelligence. We didn't evolve from some Neanderthal. Next time somebody tells you that early man was dumb, here's what I want you to ask them. Those Egyptian pyramids. Yeah, how, how did they get built? Because, number one, we know they exist. Number two, I, I've got a buddy. He's a Christian archaeologist. He's been over there, done some work. He told me, he said, Brad... We know precisely what vein of marble some of those stones came from. He said they weigh over 60 tons. 200 miles away is where they were cut. 
How do you drag a stone that weighs 60 tons 200 miles without any modern machinery? Now, I know what they show in the textbooks, right? They show like six or eight slaves rolling them on logs. <laughs> yeah, problem. It's in the desert. You know what would happen to those logs if they got a 60-ton stone on them in the sand? It would bury up, wouldn't it? Best answer I've ever heard for how they move those stones came to me from an eight-year-old child. I was at a weekend seminar teaching on Christian evidences. Child pulled on my pants leg during a break. He said, sir, I think I know how they moved those stones. I said, how's that? He said, I think they hitched them up to dinosaurs. He may not be all that wrong. Early man was not ignorant. Somebody says, okay, but still, Brad, you know, how are you going to get two of everything? I mean, just, just think about all the different species. Again, he didn't have to get two of every species. He just had to get two of every kind, right? Take a look at the screen for just a minute. On the screen is a chart showing all the different types of dogs we've got today coming from what we label at the top as just an ancestral dog. So did Noah have to take two golden retrievers, two Labrador retrievers, two Bassets, two Beagles, two German Shepherds, or could he have taken just two of the dog kind? Because again, we've had roughly 4,000 years to breed dogs and backbreed them and get all these different varieties we got today. I mean, we, we got all kinds of oodle doodles and snickerdoodles and all kinds of dogs, right? But they all came from an original pair of male and female dogs. Somebody says, all right, well, Brad. How in the world is one guy going to go get the penguins from Antarctica and the panda bears from China and the lions from Africa and, and tigers from Asia? And, well, let me, let me point out to you. Anytime somebody is criticizing this book right here, it usually tells me they probably read it the least. Okay, Turn back with me. Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read to you verses 19 and 20. I want you to pay really close attention to what the text says right here. Of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing on the earth after its kind. Notice the next phrase. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Did, did Noah have to go get the penguins, the polar bears, the panda No, the text says they what? They came to him. Folks, a God that can parade animals in front of Adam to be named, he can sure get them on a boat to be saved, right? I, I've actually read a couple of scholarly articles that said this may not have been all that miraculous you know God had roughly a hundred years he could have simply used weather patterns droughts 
to kind of move them the direction they wanted as far as their food sources. But again, I would point out to you, a God that can name the animals or parade the animals, he can certainly get them on a boat. To which our skeptic says, okay, but how are you going to feed, water, and clean up after that many animals? Which, by the way, is a pretty good question if you stop and think about it. I mean, how do you do that with just Noah and his family? Well, my first answer is this. Are we sure Noah and his family had to? Could he have actually, could God have put some of these animals into a state of hibernation? Is that possible? Well, in, in order for that to be possible, what we got to do is we got to look back at this book and ask ourselves, was there ever a time where God put an animal to sleep? Like, say, Adam, when he made Eve. Y'all do realize God was the first anesthesiologist, right? But I want you to notice, even if he didn't put them asleep, it was certainly possible. There was a, a book written several years ago. Uh, the author of it is John Woodmorap. The title of the book is Noah's Ark, A Feasibility Study. And in that book, he showed how eight people working 10 hours a day could have easily fed, watered, and cleaned up after all those animals. Somebody says, all right, did it rain before the flood? Well, let's talk about what we know for sure and what we don't know for sure. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 2. Look with me starting in verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. And there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So here's what I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt. And that is, I know there was a time where it didn't rain where God used this mist to water the earth. Now, I can't be dogmatic about how long that lasted because the text doesn't tell us. Now, I do have an opinion, and I know what an opinion's worth. I know everybody's got one. It is my opinion that it had not rained. And let me give you two reasons why. Reason number one, what was the symbol that God gave Noah that he would never flood the earth again? It was a rainbow. Folks, had it rained prior to the flood, that rainbow wouldn't have been all that special to Noah. He would have seen them before. Point number two, flip over with me and look in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. That great hall of faith chapter, look with me at verse 7 that says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, Move with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Being divinely warned of things not yet seen? Yeah, I don't think it had rained. Now, I hear the pattering of little feet that are not my grandsons, which tells me we're out of time. I, I, I do appreciate very, very much your attention this morning. 
Here's the take-home message. The flood was real. And folks, as Christians, we don't need to compromise the truth. Appreciate very, very much your attention. We'll get ready for worship together. Thank you.